This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. When uh, the uh, when government announced that they were going to slash hydro rates uh, a week or two ago, uh, that was for you and me as residential customers. They're not doing a whole lot for the institutions around here. And uh, Hamilton Hospitals, both St. Joe's and Hamilton Health Sciences, are, are very upset about some of the increases they've seen and how they're supposed to handle those. We'll talk about that in the second hour of the program today. How do we as a community promote unity and peaceful coexistence during a time of frustration and divisiveness? Well, there's going to be an event tonight at Beth Jacobs Synagogue, uh, interfaith prayer service to take place. We're going to talk with some of the members who are going to be uh, taking part in that. Uh, they're going to join us after 11 o'clock this morning. Lots more coming up in the program today, including, yeah, LRT. Yeah, it's been a couple of days since we've talked about it, but it's back on the front burner right now because... Well, of some of the actions by some city councillors about actually getting a phone survey, commissioning a phone survey to do that. But also, opposition of the LRT project have now filed an official complaint against the mayor, saying that his membership on the Electro Utilities Board of Directors is actually a direct conflict of interest. Carol Lasich is, of course, at Gilbert's Big and Tall, but she's also a member of the No Hamilton LRT group, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on that. Carol, how are you doing this morning? I'm well, Bill. How are you? Doing? Excellent, excellent. Talk Good. to us. Talk to us about how you guys came to this decision. Well, when it first uh, was presented that uh, the mayor was on the board of Electra, we we immediately questioned, uh, you know, the the issue of conflict, and uh, this was further substantiated by Councillor Skelly also questioning uh, his position uh, regarding that. So, as we all know, the LRT is run by electricity. Uh, which would create an enormous billing, which would actually go directly to uh, Electra. So this is one of the main reasons why we um, posted the, uh, we filed the complaint, uh, because we do feel it's a direct conflict of interest. I mean, how can the mayor make unbiased decisions in council regarding the Hamilton LRT when he is currently sitting on the board that would ultimately benefit from an LRT? So where are you taking this complaint? This is a concern, obviously, by your group, but, but you've, you've taken this to official levels now, right? Yeah. Yes, we have, yeah. We've gone to the Ontario Obitsman, and uh, it's up to, um, I think, uh, Mr. Dubay to mm-hmm. decide whether he will um, end up pursuing the, um, this uh, complaint or not. Now, have you heard from the office? Have you made an official complaint, first of all? Oh, yes. We've, we have made an official complaint, and I actually um, have a call into them. They requested that I um, speak to them yesterday, and uh, unfortunately, I did get a voicemail. So I hope to uh, touch base with them this morning uh, discussing this issue. What's, uh, mm-hmm. what's the ultimate goal here, Carol? Uh, do you want to see the mayor step down from the board? Do you want to see him recuse himself from LRT decisions? What, do you, what are you looking for here? Uh, well, ultimately, we would uh, we feel that uh, his uh, vote uh, should um, be rescinded or whatever. His support for the LRT would um, would would be um, a non-issue, and uh, we would like to ultimately see that his vote uh, not be counted uh, with regards to the LRT. So this is not a move to try to get him off the the elector board per se. This is more about well, the, the support what? for council. Well, um, I mean, ultimately, our, our our first goal is uh, in regards to the LRT because that's uh, our major issue. But but ultimately, I think uh, you know it. Um, I think it would be a good idea for him to step down from the board because it uh, it is a conflict of interest um, with regards to many other aspects uh, that we're facing. 
In the conversation, so, now you haven't had the conversation with Mr. Dubé yet, the ombudsman for the no. province of Ontario, but uh, when that happens, and maybe it will be later on today, mm-hmm. I'm not sure Mr. Dubé's schedule, but uh, if you guys yeah. should hook up like that, uh, what what are you going to be asking him to do? Uh, obviously to review this, but is, do you want mm-hmm. him to render a decision on this? Oh, yes, I, I would. I, I think, um, you know, it's his position to determine this. And uh, based on our findings and our, um, you know, our discussion, I, I hope that uh, he will um, obviously make the right decision um, in our favor, of course. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I do feel that this is uh, a total conflict of interest and uh uh, the mayor should uh, step down from the board, and he should uh, not be able to uh, vote. Uh, with re- and if he does stay on the board, that uh, his vote for the LRT should not uh, should be non-existent. So, now, so, so the letter that you sent to the ombudsman. I just want to be clear on this, yes. so we know exactly what we might expect from Mr. Dubé, uh, Carol. You you express concern about this. Now, did mm-hmm. you do in that letter? Do you ask actually ask him to tell the mayor to recuse himself from any LRT votes? Is that what you're asking? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, the um, in the actual um, uh, complaint form, basically, it uh, really didn't allow for any specific um, requests regarding this. This is just an initial um, filing of a conflict of interest, and I'm assuming that uh, once we have further discussion that um, with Mr. Dubé, that um, he will this um, the specifics of the um, of the complaint will present itself. Now, yeah. we, you've been in studio with some of the other members of yeah. the, the uh, uh, No Hamilton, No LRT for Hamilton committee. Uh, what kind of what are you hearing here in the way of feedback uh, from community mm-hmm. here? Is there is there support for what you're trying to do here? I believe there is. We've gotten so many positive uh, comments and remarks from uh, many many uh, varying individuals, and uh, and as I mentioned, I mean even Councillor Skelly, um, you know, tabled this uh, question as well. Uh, which just further are, you know, which further substantiated the reasons uh, behind our uh, filing of this uh, of this complaint. So I, I think there's there's a huge um, uh, support uh, group for um, us doing uh, moving forward with this issue because uh, many many people. Uh, pro or um, against the LRT are um, you know in, are questioning this issue. So, did you have a conversation with Councillor Skelly about this? No, I have not. Would you be expecting or asking her to carry the ball for this politically if that's needed? Um, I would, um, you know. In other words, to bring it to council's yeah. attention. Oh, I I believe that they already um, I'm probably uh, I'm sure they're very well aware of it, but um, absolutely, and I'm sure she would be very supportive of doing that. Carol, thanks mm-hmm. so much for the time today. Uh, oh, please keep in touch with us and let me know how you make out with your conversation with the ombudsman. I sure will. Thank you so very much for having me. Thanks, Taylor. Carol. Carol, uh, license of course uh, with Gilbert's Big and Tall, of course on King Street. Uh, a concerned business along the uh, proposed LRT route, and uh, they are now sending a letter to the Ontario ombudsman, Paul Dubé to ask him to intercede, uh, suggesting that Mayor Eisenberger, because he sits on the board of Electro Utilities, uh, that they would benefit from this contract and from an LRT construction, and uh, that that is a conflict of interest. Uh, we'll see how the Obensman would respond to that. Uh, that's one element. The other element uh, in, the, in the LRT file, uh, boy, this is hopping now, uh, a number of city councillors have decided to pool some of their money from their uh, their administrative budgets, and actually hire Forum Research, a national pollster, 
to do a poll here in Hamilton about light rail transit. Now, my understanding is not everybody on council is on board with this. Uh, somebody who's obviously going to be impacted by this is Jason Farr. He's the councillor for Ward 2 right downtown. Uh, and I want to bring him into the conversation to get his read on what's going on. Jason, first of all, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Let me, uh, first of all, right up front, ask you, right, are, are you part of this group that's, uh, that's financing this? No, and it was reported that I was. I certainly contemplated it, and I appreciated the opportunity uh, from some of the folks who are involved in the poll who had asked me if uh, I would be interested in being a uh, funding contributor and uh, taking part. And when they asked that question, uh, they said, and obviously you would, prior to the poll going public, have an opportunity to provide input on what sort of questions should be asked. And then I provided that input, and it wasn't... uh, something that uh, the the group wanted to include in the poll bill so i opted out so they voted you off the island <laughs> very much so what did you say that really pissed them off then <laughs> well basically uh you know and 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 you know respecting that uh this is part of uh you know the growing pains of a billion dollar infrastructure project and you and i've talked about this many many times and respecting the fact that uh you know, I don't think any community has gone through such a major infrastructure, multimodal transit, infra- uh, sustainability project such as this without the, the growing pains and, and the confusion at times and the unanswered questions and all of that and the many years it takes to put something and establish something like this in an inner city or any city. Um, but my, my, my thoughts were that while the general premise of the poll appears to me anyway to be some relatively simple questions, uh, trying to get a uh, quote-unquote point-in-time snapshot of the uh, sentiment of the people of Hamilton, it doesn't go far enough in uh, gaining that understanding on on the understanding of the uh, people of Hamilton on the LRT project. It does ask uh, A to E, uh, what is your level of understanding on the project? And A is a very good understanding, and E is I don't understand anything at all. Uh, but my my question was, why couldn't we include, um, if you do understand the project uh, fairly well or very well, do you also understand how the Move Ontario funding works? Uh, it was on the Bill Kelly show last year that uh, um, Ted McMeekin came on and said, if you don't want the billion dollars for this project, there's a queue and we'll just put it because it's part of the Move Ontario fund to some other community. I think that's key information to get out there because it may, um, you know, educate as well as inform uh, with respect to being a poll. And, and they didn't want it that to be, to be part of it. Fair enough. It was too complicated. Uh, I, I make it sound complicated when I translate it to you, but obviously... Yeah, but that's, that's, a, question, that's a fact that's very germane to this discussion. I, I and and you've heard so. this, and so have I. There are still some people that either don't believe it or don't want to believe that, but, I mean, that's what the provincial policy says, notwithstanding the, the fact that uh, that they say there's some flexibility and Patrick Brown says, well, we're not sure if we form the next government, yada, yada, yada. But the reality here is that there are still some people in this community that think that, you know, if they say no to LRT, that they're going to have a billion dollars to play with to do something else. And that's not the case. It's key, very key to this ongoing discussion, the ongoing dissension, the ongoing confusion as it relates to this very uh, intrinsic file. And so I think if you're going to do a poll, you should at least try to educate to the fact that this is not about changing our minds at a municipal level and using the money for anything else because it's been very made very, very clear. There's been no announcement since from this majority government from the province of Ontario that we could 
take 750 of it and fix bridges. It's specifically part of a Move Ontario fund for higher order transit connectivity to the uh, GTHA and all of those things that uh, you know most of your listeners are aware of. You talk about it enough. Uh, but there are many people in the city that may not be aware of that or at least needs to be uh, shared again so we can get through to folks that, that while there's some on council and some in the community that want to suggest that there's so many other things we can do, battery-powered buses or flying cars or gondolas or, you know, a billion dollars worth of bananas, the reality is the billion dollars goes back into the pot and another community gets their higher-order transit that's currently unfunded, and that's the brass tacks. Here's the overriding question, and I mentioned this on my commentary at 810 this morning. Why even bother? I mean, when you look at the logistics of what's going on here, uh, we already know that the majority support for LRT is in the four downtown wards. We get that because that's going to have the most direct impact. And, and, the, and the, the, the level of support for it peters out as you go further away from the downtown. We got that. This is not new. And if, if that's what this poll is going to show, and I think it is, we're going to say, well, been there, done that. Secondly, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you've already given, been given a legal opinion that even if council decides that a hell with this whole thing, two-thirds of you are going to have to vote it down, and that's not going to happen either because the support's already there. So is this not just a waste of time and money? Well, I mean, you're just pre- you're presenting facts, and, and I might... Sorry add- to let facts get in the way of the discussion <laughs> here, but you know... Those are facts that might also be relevant to a poll to help. If we're going to go out and, and, and uh, solicit uh, over 2,000 folks from various demographics, uh, all with landline phones, I might add, which is another element of polling that right now is very much in question because the younger demographic just certainly, as far as I know, the large bulk of them anyway, I don't think I've met one person under No, they don't use landlines. Landline phone. Um, uh, the, 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 if we can reach out that to that many people, at least let's also try to educate at the same time. But that, this poll isn't really doing that though, from what I've seen. That said, if uh, some councillors want to participate, Fair enough. I mean, we we have polled in the past through our our office financing. I'm not personally uh, going to participate if we can't educate. Look, here are the numbers, and I'm I'm not that good at math, but this one was pretty easy to figure out. We have 500,000 people in this city. They're going to, according to what the the councillors are telling us here, there's probably going to be about 2,000 people that are going to be polled. That works out to 0.004 percent of the population. Are you really going to tell me that that's indicative of uh, how this community feels about this? Oh, absolutely. And then there's the other, you know, I think ethical uh, responsibility on our part as municipally elected officials. I mean, when the premier made the announcement, there's one very significant statement she said at the end of her speech. And she actually spoke to my then uh, 10-year-old son and said, you know, sometimes as politicians, we make decisions that get us reelected. And at other times, and very important occasions, we make decisions that affect us 10, 20, 30 years down the road. This is one of those decisions. And we have that responsibility um, to continue to think that way as municipally elected officials. And that's another way I think we can educate those folks who may be on the fence about LRT, who may be hearing the hyperboil or the dissent and, and uh, from the no LRT side and these organized efforts, whether they be from a few councillors or people in the community, on on options and alternatives. There are no options or alternatives being presented, and this decision was made over a course of many terms of council over well over I think it's 40 votes now that are associated with a beeline LRT uh, for all of those good reasons, and primarily to focus on 10, 20, 30 years from now. 
We The idea of a referendum is floated some time ago, and for a variety of reasons, a, a lot of people on council, and I think a, a lot more people in the community, said that it would be folly to even do something like that. Is this really just a backdoor way to try to gain some sense of a referendum? Uh, well, it, it, you know, it's very limited. There's there's maybe two questions. Uh, first, kind of like, who are you? What's your demo? They're trying to get the demographic information on the poll. And then the second is your what is your understanding of the LRT? So when you hear from Councillor Whitehead or, or, or Marula or whomever may be more in-depthly involved in this poll at this time, as I say, I contemplate it, but I'm no longer it's no longer relevant to me. Uh, they may suggest, uh, Bill, that it, it really is for them a purpose to seek out a point in time uh, a sense of wh- where the community is on how they feel or, or what their understanding is of LRT. Other than that, it's uh, more or less just a demographic breakdown and, and again, a limited, uh, 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 what do you call it, sample of 2,000 folks in the community with landline phones. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hydro rates, of course, have been uh, the topic of contention and, and of, of vocal discourse for the longest time here in the province of Ontario. Uh, the Wynn government announced uh, a few days ago now that uh, they were going to make a 25% cut in residential rates. And uh, that was supposed to offer some relief. And uh, there's uh, some suggestions uh, from Queen's Park that there actually could be more measures in the uh, the coming days and weeks ahead, too. But that doesn't look after everybody. Uh, let's talk about businesses. Let's talk about farms. Let's talk about healthcare facilities. Ontario MDP leader Andre, Andrea Horvath is uh, warning that the rapid rise in hydro rates is going to affect Ontario's hospitals if it hasn't already. Uh, they did a survey. Other um, media outlets have done surveys including uh, Global News in the Toronto area, too. And uh, Andrea Horvath, the leader of the Ontario NDP Party, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Andrea. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Bill. How are you? I'm well. Listen, we should clarify right off the get-go that uh, that when uh, Premier Wynne announced that there was going to be a 25% cut, I'm sure we've all heard the commercials about it. That's another topic, though, Uh, or a tangent of this one, I guess. Uh, That was for residential. This does not include institutional facilities, does it? No, it's uh, it's not inclusive of uh, places like hospitals. Um, we know municipalities are also in uh, in bad shape when it comes to the rising cost of electricity at municipal level. Uh, there's uh, say, medium-sized businesses, for example, are not um, included. I, I know you mentioned farms. Uh, I think that they are included, but uh, again, it's uh, you know if you're lucky enough to be included, that's great. Uh, but all of us will be paying for this for, you know, 30 years down the pike. Our, our grandchildren will be paying for it, and that's uh, that's why this plan is a bad plan. Well, you've uh, done some work on this, and I know you talked to the folks at St. Joseph's Healthcare about this, and uh, Hamilton Health Sciences has also uh, offered up some numbers on this, and the the increases that they have had to absorb have been substantial. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite worrisome. I mean, St. Joe's had uh, over double doubling of their cost of electricity. Now, we all know the West Fifth site went up, but uh, but even so, their their consumption only went up about uh, uh, maybe 30% or so, uh, but their bills uh, went up by 105%. So it's, uh, it's, really, um, it's really obvious that the hospitals have felt the impact. And so hospitals have already been uh, squeezed by the Liberal government. They've had frozen budgets for four years in, in a row, and then last year only a 1% increase uh, with the rising hydro bills kind of 
you know, layered on top of that, uh, it's, it's causing serious problems. I mean, serious uh, decisions are having to be made, decisions they probably don't want to have to make around patient care and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, people's uh, access to services. Well, let's look at some numbers here as well, because I understood, I heard that same argument that, well, come on, they built a brand new facility. Of course, their hydro costs are going to go up. But but when you get down and look at the the, the line items on the bill, St. Joseph bill especially, uh, they had a jump in the uh, kilowatt hour rate uh, from 10.2 all the way up to 16.4 in one year alone. I don't care if you're building a new facility or not, that's going to have an impact. Well, absolutely, and that's the problem with the Liberals, uh, you know, energy system that we are now dealing with. I mean, hospitals can't shut off the lights on off-peak, on, on, on peak hours, rather. So during the day, that's when hospitals are using a lot of energy, and, and that those are the on-peak hours, and they're paying on-peak prices, and that's why we're, we're seeing those kinds of uh, jumps in the, the cost, is because uh, the, 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 the hospital simply can't, you know, shut down when the price of electricity is at its highest. That's why uh, we've said and in our plan that we're going to get rid of the mandatory time-of-use pricing, so that the hospital's in our plan, would be paying 10.3 cents a kilowatt hour. Is let's let's talk about the impact this is having first of all, because you know, like I say, there's there's only a finite number of dollars, and and we've talked with the uh, the administrative folks at, at both St. Joseph's Healthcare and at Hamilton Health Sciences about this, and and you're absolutely right. They're very concerned about the reduction that's going on in in healthcare spending right now. Uh, governments may just try to defend their position on this, but there are a few dollars that are flowing down into healthcare facilities like this. And just as if you and I and our households are having to, to scrimp and save now to try to pay utility bills and say, well, I guess we can't afford to do this anymore, we can't afford to do that anymore, how's this impacting on the hospitals? I mean, they're, they're the ones that we go to, as you say, for primary care, and they're faced with these huge bills and they don't have any money to pay for it. Well, I mean, exactly. And so, I mean, we've seen layoffs in, in most hospitals around the province, uh, significant layoffs of frontline staff, whether those staff be, you know, registered nurses or PSWs or technicians in the labs uh, or, you know, privatization of some of the services like the cleaning staff, for example, or, uh, or uh, you know, cafeteria and food services. I mean, all of these things are being done because the hospitals have been squeezed by the Liberal government. And, and you know, it's it's frustrating because... I mean, I think that most people, if you ask them what's their most important uh, concern, it's their health and well-being and the health and well-being of their family members. And so, you know, to, to see a government that is so out of touch that they don't realize that, that, that they're, you know, that they're devastating, uh, you know, the, the, the very service that the people of the province uh, treasure the most is, I mean, it's really clear that this government uh, has, has no understanding at all of where people are at and what their top concerns are. So give us a plan. What, what, I mean, obviously this is not working, and this is going to be problematic for this. So how do you solve something like this? Because this is, it's, it's not that difficult to identify the problem. I think we've all talked about that for a long, long time now, Andrea. But what we're looking for here are solutions. Uh, we're getting an idea of now what the, the wind government solution is to this, and, and it, it covers part of it, obviously, with some long-term gain, or short-term gain, rather, for long-term pain. But when, when I'm looking at how this is impacting institutions like this, and we haven't even talked about any places like boards of education, et cetera, that are, are going to exactly. be in, are impacted by this. Those numbers aren't in yet, but i got to figure it's a similar story. What are we going to do about it? Well, it's definitely a similar story, and that's why, uh, that's why our plan uh, makes more sense, because our plan actually deals with the systemic problems in the hydro system. So it's, uh, it's 
it, unlike the Liberals, uh, we want to fix the problems. We want to get rid of mandatory time of use pricing uh, so that people don't have to do their laundry at four in the morning and still see their electricity rates rising. Uh, we want to get rid of the excess uh, oversupply in the uh, in the electricity market. In other words, we've got all kinds of private companies uh, that are making lots of profits off of our electricity system, uh, but they're generating electricity that we're not even using. And we're dumping that electricity on the uh, spot market and not making uh, very much money for it. In other words, we're, we're generating it at a loss. That's got to stop. So we're going to look at all those contracts. Some of them are coming due. We're going to get rid of the ones that are, are not uh, necessary anymore as they come due. We're going to make sure that the ones that we um, that we're tied into that we're, we're fighting to get a better you know value for the people of Ontario and you know what another big uh, you know part of our plan which is completely different from the Liberals is we're going to buy back Hydro One that that revenue generating utility should never have been sold off and as it continues to be privatized it's just going to bring more and more uh, you know expense into the uh, into the system the privatization of our electricity system is exactly what's put us in the in the situation that we're in now and so we're gonna we've got to do everything we can to, to make sure that when we're looking at our electricity bills we're paying for electricity not for the profits of private and foreign companies if that were to be the plan and if if, if in fact uh, you had an opportunity to to formulate a, and, and actually deliver a plan like that where's the money going to come from to buy back those shares well, I mean, it's, 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 so it's a plan that's already existing. I mean, we, we actually put our plan forward and then two or three days later, the Liberals, uh, came up with their plan. So they actually, you know, saw that we were taking the lead on this issue and they jumped in, uh, with their 25% reduction, uh, that I think they wrote up on the back of a napkin by the looks of it. But nonetheless, our plan's pretty, um, uh, full. It's pretty fulsome. It's pretty uh, detailed. It's online. Anybody can go look at it. We we had it up a couple weeks ago when we first launched it. But look, the the buyback of the shares comes from the dividends. Uh, the you know right now the liberals are are giving away the dividends to private interest. The shareholders that uh, have bought shares in the in Hydro One are are now the ones that are are you know dipping into the dividends that should be going you know to uh, to the people of Ontario in terms of uh, making sure their electricity systems up to snuff and that uh, the rates are kept at a at a reasonable amount. Uh, so we're going to use the extra dividends or the dividends that still are coming to the public first uh, to buy back those shares uh, over an eight-year period. And, and uh, within that time frame, all things, you know, kind of equal as they are right now, uh, we'll be able to have Hydro One back in public hands. But those dividends that that you're referring to are going into they're going into the public purse already right now. So essentially, for the length of time it would take you to buy back all those shares, we'd see no dividend at all from uh, from Hydro One. Well, I you'd, mean, you'd I, just I, be you'd just be I, using I, it to buy up shares. Well, I mean, the, the, this, the, what we'll be doing is looking at the amount of dividends we would need. To, to buy up those shares, and uh, and and yes, we will be putting those dividends uh, to those uh, uh, th- that uh, effort. There's just no doubt about it. And look, we have seen a government that has treated you know the public dollar uh, with such disrespect. I mean, they spend money uh, to make make the liberals do better. I mean, Kathleen Wynne cares more about herself and her party uh, than she does about everyday people. Eighty percent of Ontarians didn't want Hydro One sold off. She ignored them and sold it off anyways. And again, as I say, uh, it's a recipe for disaster because it's just more privatization in a system that's uh, that's already privatized too much. And it started with the Conservatives, if you remember, uh, with the Mike Harris government when they deregulated and started privatizing the generation of electricity. Uh, so again, yes, we are going to use... Uh, 
you know, a good portion of those dividends to buy back the shares. And depending on how many shares have been sold off and how much, um, you know, how much the share price is, that will determine how much of the dividends we'll need uh, to, uh, to buy back uh, those, uh, those shares and at, in what time frame. One of the other contentious parts of this, of course, has been the Green Energy Act uh, that the Liberals enacted some years ago. And now I know on a philosophical level, Andrea, your party supports the idea of, of renewable energy and, and of conservation and of green energy at the same time. How do you make those investments? Do you, do you kill that bill altogether? Do you, do you have your own form of it? Where, where, where are you on that particular aspect? Because, I mean, there are some people here that just like to scrap the whole thing and forget about any other alternative forms of energy and just go back to, to hydroelectric power. Well, I have to tell you, it's pretty horrifying to think that uh, somebody would take power in here, here in the province, um, you know, electorally and, and just tear up hundreds of contracts sight unseen, not knowing what it'll do to the people of Ontario in terms of our, our fiscal situation. I mean, we saw what happened with two gas plants in Mississauga and Oakville. Uh, and when the Liberals tore up those contracts, it cost, they said it was going to cost $40 million. It cost over a billion dollars. Uh, so anybody who says they could just tear up all those contracts sight unseen uh, is being irresponsible uh, and not being truthful about the impacts on people. Uh, having said that, yes, we did support the Green Energy Act because we do believe, and I think most people in Ontario as a kind of a, a value statement understand that uh, climate change is an issue and that we have to do everything we can uh, to, uh, to bring you know, renewable energy on the grid and stop uh, the greenhouse gas emissions or reduce them as much as possible. But... What the Liberals decided to do, uh, instead of making that system one that brought community benefit through municipal partnerships, through farm co-ops, through, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, programs that worked with Indigenous communities, they basically just sold it off to the private sector. And so again, as the Auditor General has said, uh, the Liberals basically made their friends rich, uh, gave these uh, private companies very, very lucrative fixed-price contract over a long period of time, uh, and, and that's what we're paying for. So again, it, it wasn't the principle of green energy that is the problem. It's the way that the Liberals implemented it, and in doing so, shamefully, they ended up creating a total backlash against, against green energy, against renewables on the grid, something that most people, I think, again, would have uh, been quite supportive of. In fact, I know people personally who used to be very, very supportive of, for example, wind uh, energy. Uh, and they happened to live in an area where this uh, was quite contentious, where farmer was pit against farmer, where family member pit against family member, you know, community against community. And now there's been such chaos that the very people that supported wholeheartedly uh, wind energy in the first place are now completely opposed to it, which is another failure of the Liberal government. So you you would go through those contracts one by one then, because uh, there are Absolutely. some outstanding contracts or contracts that are, will soon be uh, coming up uh, to do with uh, wind farms and, and renewable energies and, and things of this nature. You're not arbitrarily going to get rid of all of those then? No, no, absolutely. What we've said is we'll take a fine-tooth comb to those contracts. We'll aggressively try to renegotiate uh, where we can. And, and, and let's remember, I mean, this is something that the Liberals did themselves. I mean, they got caught so embarrassed by how much, um, you know, money they were giving to Samsung that they actually renegotiated their own contract with Samsung because they were embarrassed into making some kind of move uh, to make it at least, you know, somewhat more reasonable for the people of Ontario, and they were able to shave hundreds of millions of dollars off of that contract. So it's not, you know, it's not um, outside of the realm of possibility that these contracts 
contracts can be renegotiated. Having said that, if we come up with contracts through doing this review that are so egregious in terms of the public interest, uh, and, and, and when you look at the penalties and fines that may be built in, uh, you know, that would, um, that would be a deterrent to, to getting out of the contract, uh, and those fines and penalties are less um, problematic for the people of Ontario, in other words, they cost us less to get out of the contract, then we will certainly look at getting out of those contracts. But we won't do it willy-nilly. We'll do it in a thoughtful, precise way uh, and with a mind to always being, um, you know, being responsible uh, to the ratepayers and the, uh, the, the people of Ontario. I got a minute left here. Uh, when asked that very question, Premier Wynne said that uh, they had already looked at those contracts and uh, there are no cracks in there that they can renegotiate. Do you take her at her word? Uh, no, this is the same Liberal government that said the gas plant cancellation was going to be $40 million and it cost us over a billion. I don't think anybody, and in fact, I don't blame anybody in Ontario who takes every single word that this Premier says with a massive grain of salt because she's not truthful with the people of Ontario. Uh, she continues to protect herself and her Liberal Party above the interests of the people of this province, and that's why people are becoming so fed up. And I have to say, there's an election next year, uh, and we have to do something to make sure that Premier Wynne and the Liberals uh, can no longer do the damage that they've been doing here in this province. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Lots of speculation about how uh, this thing is going to be constructed and uh, the impact that it's going to have. And uh, joining us to talk about this is Corinne Pullman, Senior Vice President of National Affairs and Partnerships with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Corinne, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. I'm glad to be here. Are you nervous? I'm nervous. I think we're all nervous, aren't we? Let, let me, let me yeah. let's first of all deal with the elephant in the room. How how big is the Trump factor in 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 how the, this government formulated this budget? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say, but I think it does play probably somewhat of a role because it's unclear exactly um, how how much cutting is going to happen in the United States that's going to, in terms of taxation and regulations that we're going to have to compete with, but of course also what's going to happen with NAFTA. And both of those factors, I think, play into where Canada goes in the future, and I, I suspect there's probably some of that being played into today's budget for sure. I, I mean, there's there's been so much talk right now about, about you know, extra taxes at the border, the, the border adjustment yeah. tax that Trump has talked about. NAFTA probably isn't going to start till later this year, but I mean, this it still probably has some sort of an impact on, on what Mr. Morneau is going to say today, wouldn't you think? Yes, I would think so, um, only because uh, the uncertainty still exists about what happens south of the border, and um, President Trump has um, been unpredictable, right, it's at times, so it's unclear what he says today is going to be what happens tomorrow, and so hopefully I think that, you know, the current government has done a good job of sort of managing uh, President Trump since he came into to power in terms of you know, moving from potentially making massive changes to NAFTA, maybe just tweaking it with Canada. That's good news, right? But again, what does that actually mean in the end of the day? So I think it's uh, it's certainly going to be a factor in, that we're all going to be thinking about in the next six to eight months. They've spent a lot of time down in the States, Mr. Morneau and other ministers, uh, trying to feel out, I guess, uh, some not just the, the Trump administration, but some of the other legislatures in, in some of the, uh, the states that uh, Canada does a lot of trading with right now. Is that going to help? 
Oh, I think so. I think building relationships is going to be very important uh, in terms of where we're going to go when it comes to our relationship with the United States. So I think it's, it's, it's a good idea to build those relationships, especially in those states that do most of their trading with Canada. I think there's something like 35 states out of the 50 that the number one export market is Canada. So I think it's important that we continue to build those types of relationships so that when those negotiations start to happen, um, we hopefully have some more allies than we think uh, down there. In the uh, the first budget that uh, Bill Morneau delivered, uh, there was a, a lot of talk about investment in skills and infrastructure spending and innovation and things of this nature. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is uh, not a lot of that got out of the House, uh, actually in, into some of those programs. How does the government move the, the, the money to, to where they actually want to see it go? Yeah, well, that's always the big, uh, <laughs> big mystery. And uh, I suspect that we're going to see a bit more detail about how they're going to be using some of the infrastructure money that they actually uh, committed to last year. And we, as we've all heard, it's not moving out as quickly as everyone had thought it would. Um, so there may be a little bit more details around that today. Um, I think that every new government thinks that they can move things quickly, and then they realize after they've been in office for you know a year or so that, oh, things don't move as quickly as you think when you're dealing with as big a bureaucracy as the government of Canada. So it'll be interesting to see um, what they're going to say on that front, uh, both on the in- infrastructure and on the innovation side. Um, they've, you know, There's been lots of speculation this will be the innovation budget. What that actually means in practice is, I think, what we're warning, waiting to hear more about. But, but in, in one sense, though, Corinne, that, that's almost a, an abstract concept for an awful lot of people. What do you mean by innovation budget? Where are you going to invest the money? I guess, the, as, as always, the devil will be in the details. Well, you got it, and I think right, we're on the same page. Uh, innovation means lots of different things to lots of different people, and from our perspective, we represent small, medium-sized companies, uh, most of whom are extremely innovative but aren't necessarily um, categorized in the ways that governments categorize innovation. And so we've been sort of you know, pounding doors in the pavement here in Ottawa to make sure that they understand that innovation comes in many forms, and so they need to make sure when they're looking at ways to, to generate more innovation that they don't neglect the, the, you know, thousands and thousands of businesses out there that are creating jobs and communities that may not be in the high-tech or biotech sector. Yeah, but herein lies the problem. Um, I mean, you know, the gone are the days when somebody's going to announce, hey, there's a, they're going to build a factory of 5,000 new jobs here. Uh, you like to think once in a while that's going to come along, but not much anymore. I mean, it's small business, and it's businesses of 10, 12, 15, 20 people that are actually uh, serving as the backbone, in, in certainly in the, the newer Hamilton economy here, and of course in major cities right across the, the, the country at this stage. The governments get that yet? Are they doing what they can to try to encourage and, and, and help those businesses to flourish? Well, um, they're not sure, and that's why I think we are a little bit nervous today, because I think we're, t- we're, we're trying to make that message a lot more clear. One of the big things that we'd hoped to see was a reduction in the small business tax rate, for example, that they had promised they would reduce from 11 to 9% uh, during the election campaign in 2015. But in the last budget, they uh, basically said that they were only going to lower it to 10.5%, and that was it moving forward, and instead focus on some very specific types of initiatives for very specific types of industries. And so that started to worry us, but we don't really know what that actually means in practice. So we're continuing to push for these measures that are going to be much more important for a broader range of businesses that are small, like you said, 12 to 15, that are creating the jobs in many of the towns and communities across this country. And that, we believe, is one of the key ones. Another one, of course, is to find ways to reduce red tape, because those are the two things that uh, annoy business owners more than anything else, is taxes and uh, regulations. And so finding ways to make sure that we're um, lowering those and making it easier to do business in Canada are going to be the most important ways in creating innovation in Canada. What about, uh, I just did a program up at the community college uh, yesterday about skilled trades and about uh, that, that, that 
kind of investment that's needed. Uh, yeah. Again, they, they certainly talk the talk in the last budget, and, and lots of governments are talking about skilled trades right now. Uh, what, where do you want to see that kind of investment vis-a-vis small business to try to, to bring along that next generation of people that are going to be able to be employed in those businesses? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's the number one barrier to innovation in, in sort of the broad way uh, that we're hearing about from members is finding the right people to fill the jobs that they have. So there's lots of different ways we're suggesting. I mean, we know that a lot of small businesses, when they, they actually end up training a lot of people into these positions, and they do it sort of on a one-on-one kind of way, and they don't necessarily send them to classes or do those things, so they may do that as well, and I think they make a lot of investments that way. So we'd love for the government to recognize that by providing things like a, um, a job credit for EI, for example, if you're bringing in young people. That was another promise that the Liberals made during the election campaign was to introduce something called the Youth Hires Credit so that um, there was an opportunity for more businesses to hire younger people, train them into the jobs they have, and they would offset the extra training costs of bringing those people into their business by lowering the amount of EI they had to pay for up to a year. And that's a way to sort of recognize that they do a lot of that training to bring people up to the skills because it's expensive to do that. So that's one measure that we think is important. Another is the fact that a lot of the programs that do exist for helping uh, people get trained up are not really recognizing the types of training small businesses do. And so we need a broader sort of definition of what training looks like because they're doing uh, a lot of that training in Canada and getting people into those positions. And they're willing to do it, but it's not always uh, uh, easy to do nor inexpensive to do. I, I heard that loud and clear yesterday when I was up at Mohawk College talking about that very thing. And, and it's one thing for governments to say, yeah, you know, we're going to help uh, to, to have kids learn how to, to do coding and, and, and tech and, and, uh, and apps and things. And that's great because that's a key yeah. part of this as well. But, but what about the other small businesses that, that don't necessarily, are, you know, incline themselves that way? There's got to be training for those too. And there's so many right now that are crying out for some help at this stage. Absolutely right. And you're, you also touched on the trades. I mean, you need just your plumbers and your uh, cabinet makers and your masons and all that are still hugely important in our society. And uh, we're continuing to have a, uh, not as many as we need. And we need to continue to encourage folks to go into those trades and uh, fill those jobs because there is a demand. One of the uh, mantras that we heard, and, and again, there's always these little leaks that come out from time to time, but from the, the finance minister's department, is that they want to, uh, they want to uh, try to move along uh, the, the middle class. They want to create a, a sense of optimism in the middle class right now. What do they need to do to do that? Because right now people are getting a little apprehensive, as we talked about right at the beginning of this conversation. And when people are apprehensive, they don't spend money. Uh, they they kind of cower in the corner waiting to see what's going to happen next. Yeah, and I think part of that solution from our perspective is that small businesses have to be recognized as being a big contributor to building the middle class. They themselves are the middle class. They employ the middle class. And so measures that sort of reflect what it is they need. So, for example, the um, lowering of the small business tax rate, which I mentioned earlier, dealing with things like regulations and red tape, can help sort of build some uh, confidence in those sectors of the economy, which then can help build the jobs and give the confidence and, and, and increase the salaries of the people that they're employing. So it's a bit of an effect that way. So I think we need to, we can't just lump the middle class Canadians into one group. We have to sort of broaden that definition. And I think um, there's been a bit of a lack of recognition of that importance that the small businesses play in, in building the middle class in Canada. What about, uh, you, you talked earlier about being competitive and, and about tax rates, and, and there's some points of conjecture about that too. There was one rumor that was going around a couple of weeks ago uh, that, that there was some talk of actually raising the corporate tax rate right now, that uh, that 15% rate is, well, there's some room there to play around like that. And I'm not so sure that's going to happen, but it's mm-hmm. out there. When it's when a balloon like that is being floated out there, you got to think that somebody in that department is thinking about doing that. What kind of yeah. an impact would that have? 
Well, I think this is where the American situation comes into play, right? If the, uh, if the U.S. decides to lower their rates, and right now we're very competitive with the United States when it comes to corporate taxation, but if the, the plans that uh, Ms. President Trump's been pushing to lower their corporate tax rate got, comes down as much as that, that's been predicted, uh, that could be a factor for Canada as well. So we need to sort of balance that because clearly you need to compete with that when it comes to uh, bringing in business and investment into Canada. And so I think they need to tread cautiously in those areas. And that's because that has a much broader impact on the overall economy if that's if if they end up having to compete uh, with the United States um, in that way. So do do we maintain the status quo in that situation and wait and see what the what the Trump uh, well not just the Trump administration because clearly the the, the Congress is yeah. going to make the ultimate choice of what's going to be happening down there. Uh, yeah. But but at that stage, uh, do we do we just kind of rag the puck here and see what they're going to do and then respond to that? Yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in, in government making those decisions, but I think it's uh, it's an important thing to sort of take a bit of a wait-and-see approach at the moment. Um, we don't think increasing the corporate tax rate at all is a good idea going forward, given that, you know, there's been a lot of effort, not just by the previous government, but also by previous liberal governments to lower the rate to what it is today, recognizing that it makes Canada more competitive globally as a destination for investment. So I think that's the wrong way to go. I also want to make sure the small business tax rate continues to, be, to reduce, as I mentioned, because of the reasons that it is a bit lower than the general rate, because they tend to have more t- a tougher time finding capital, for example. They also tend to spend a lot more when it comes to dealing with regulations. So we believe it's important to keep that smaller tax, business tax rate to offset some of those increased costs that smaller businesses face. One of the other taxes that's being uh, talked about considerably at this stage right now is the, the capital gains tax. Uh, that's on income earned, of course, from selling property or investments not held in, in registered plans. Uh, mm-hmm. They're talking about a possible significant increase in this. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that's intended to cool the housing market, which is being a problem in more and more cities across the country right now. But mm-hmm. uh, but again, that kind of significant increase might be a boon to them as far as revenue is concerned. But what's that going to do to the economy? Well, I think that's that would be a, a I think that would be a terribly bad mistake. I think that would be uh, sort of anti-innovation in some regards, right? Because I think it, it can really end up um, affecting investments overall. Because um, I think it, we would definitely be coming out against that type of a move. We've been very vocal about not moving in that direction because it takes. Um, there's a lot of risk in investing in a lot of these different areas, and this takes away some of the risk by knowing that you can potentially have some of that um, income come back in that form. But if now that income has been shrunk because uh, the government's taking a bigger chunk of it, um, that's probably going to make some investors feel like it's not worth going down those paths. And I think that's the last thing we want to do right now. Well, I mean, when you tangle people up in red tape, uh, that's obviously a a disincentive, I guess, for people to actually keep their money here or to put it here in the first place. Uh, The story I'd heard, we're talking about, I think it's at 50% right now. They're going to raise it up to 75. That's, that's, That's big. Yeah, it would be significant. And what the irony of that would be is that it was actually at that rate uh, in the past, and it was the Liberals that lowered it down to 50%. So it'd be a shame to see a new Liberal government increase it back to where it was. Some of the other taxes that have been discussed, and and the Prime Minister has been talking about carbon taxes, cap-and-trade policies, things of this nature. And again, I guess we have to have this discussion in relation to what's going to be happening uh, south of the border these days, because there's there's talk about deregulation going on down there and scrapping some of those proposed taxes that the Obama administration had put forward. Again, do, do you move forward on that, that that policy that the Prime Minister talked about during the campaign and has talked about since then as well, uh, especially in light of the fact that uh, if from a competitive standpoint, uh, we do this and the U.S. starts deregulating, that puts us, I would think, at a competitive disadvantage in many ways, wouldn't it? 
Yes, I think they need to sort of think long and hard uh, based on what's going to happen in the United States about some of the initiatives they put forward. If businesses have to face in the next few years a carbon tax, an increase in their Canada pension plan premiums, um, uh, potentially an increase in the capital gains inclusion rate, um, that that becomes pretty hefty for a lot of them to absorb. And I think it will discourage investment and growth in Canada to a degree that um, I don't think we'd like to see. So. Well, we've also had uh, a rather hearty discussion on the program this morning about utility rates and uh, how that's affecting business. Now, I know here in Ontario, there's a potential for a reduction, a short-term reduction in some of those rates. But at the same time, if that's cancelled out by some of the other programs like cap-and-trade and and, and carbon taxing that's going to put in place, what kind of pressure does that put on small business? It puts humongous pressure on small businesses. We're already hearing stories of businesses that are, uh, you know, thinking about relocating to other parts of Canada or into the United States even at this point because of the um, the rates of energy that exist currently in Ontario. So it's it's it is all adding up, and you know we have to layer on top of that municipal property taxes as well, which continue to rise that they have to pay. So it comes back to the old adage, you know, there's only one taxpayer, right? But you're dealing with all these costs and levels of government that all seem to think that they can take their share, uh, but when you add it all up together, it can be really tough to run a small business in this country right now. With uh, the financial pressures that we've talked about, let's talk about some of the quickly, anyway, some of the social issues. Uh, there has been a commitment, uh, at least verbal commitment anyway, uh, for social housing investments uh, in uh, in this budget. Uh, mm-hmm. Given some of these other pressures, do they move forward on that? Because as, as you know, in, in the broader picture, uh, short term, yeah, you could save some money by holding off on those policies, uh, but there is a price to pay for holding off on that at the same time. Yeah, I mean it's it's tough to say where where you where do you put your priorities when it comes to the spending that's there. And our concern, of course, is the overall growing deficit that's been happening under this government as well. Originally, they campaigned on a ten billion dollar deficit per year, mostly based mostly on infrastructure. Uh, that ballooned to twenty nine billion in last year's budget. Um, I don't expect we're going to see much difference in this budget either. Um, the biggest worry being that we continue to build these deficits over time. Your debt continues to grow and you have to start paying that back. And that's the bigger worry, I think, down the road. So you have to make some tough choices that we believe and start thinking about how to get yourself out of deficit over the next medium three to five year term. If the the government does make a commitment, though, to affordable housing, as they've talked about in the past, does that possibly open up the door for, uh, for more women to move back into the workforce and those that might have been uh, disadvantaged and unable to for a variety of uh, fiscal reasons? Uh, you know, it's uh, who knows? I don't, I'm not an expert in that area. I'm not sure what the correlation is between affordable housing and getting more women back into work. But I think, you know, certainly if there are things that we can do to encourage more people to get back into work, and that probably is more than just affordable housing. It's also about getting them the right skills training, getting the right support that they need to make sure that they are able to get back into the workforce in a way that they can then support themselves. We were just talking earlier about the, the logistics of what goes on today, uh, you know, but the lockup, et cetera. And I've been involved in those many times in budgets past mm-hmm. as well. Uh, because they're afraid of leaks and things of this nature. But, I mean, the reality here is, are you expecting any surprises really, Corinne, today when when Mr. Morneau rises? We pretty much have an idea of what's going to be coming down, don't we? Uh, you know what? I really don't know. Uh, I, sus- I personally think there might be some surprises. Uh, I think they've been very uh, tight-lipped this year to some degree, more than I think we've seen in other years. But, uh, you know, hopefully if there are some surprises, they're on the good side, <laughs> not on the negative side. That would be nice. Uh, that would be nice. But, you know, it's early in the mandate. And as, you, as I'm sure you know, politically speaking, it's usually easier to do the negative things early on in your mandate and uh, the more positive later on. So we'll have to wait and see. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.